Hear the word of God from John 9. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bible. Um, We will be reading John chapter 9, verses 1 through 16, and then verses 24 through 41. talking about Jesus here at the beginning. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus had Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And jump to verse 24. So for the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. 
Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again, everyone. We're continuing in our series in the book of John. And the book of John was written, as he says in John chapter 20, so that you may believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, and in so doing, have life in his name. So the purpose of the book of John, the reason John was written, was that you may believe in who Jesus is. Last week, Pastor Josh showed us what Jesus was saying when he made his I am statement. He said that he is God. He is Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Today we're looking at Jesus as the light of the world. And the way we are doing this is to really dive into this concept by the sign Jesus gives us right following him making that statement that he is the light of the world. So first of all, before we dive into this passage of scripture in John chapter 9, I'm going to take you to John chapter 8 just for a little bit. And Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, and the feast has just ended, and suddenly there is this voice that says, I am the light of the world. The Feast of Tabernacles is one of the three occasions where Jews, no matter where they were, Judea, Galilee, in the diaspora, would make their way back to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem was filled with people, thousands of people. According to one New Testament scholar, the population might even quadruple. So 400% increase to the population in Jerusalem during this time. The Feast of Tabernacles was a joyous celebration. It was a family time. And you can kind of understand why. It was a time of, of, of feasting, a time of harvest. It lasted for a week. They would build on the roofs of their homes. They'd build like tents. Uh, these tents made out of palm trees and sticks, and the children would sleep up there. So you can see, oh, this would be a fun time. We're trying to remember the time of the Exodus, uh, the time when, when they were sleeping in tents, when they were traveling. The children would go up there at night. They would eat all food, sleep out on the roofs of the house. It was a wonderful, joyous time. Kids would look forward to it. It was like a combination of our Christmas and Thanksgiving all into one, mixed in with a cool practice of sleeping outside. All sorts of fun times. And the festival had little reminders of the things that God had done in the past. We read in verse 20, John gives us a little clue. He says, these words he spoke in the treasury. That's to say, this is John chapter 8, verse 20. That's the treasury of the temple. Now, the temple was divided into several sections. When you first went to the Temple Mount, you'd walk into the court of the Gentiles. Gentiles were allowed to that outer kind of temple area, but they could go no further. Then beyond that court was the court of women. And it's there, I don't know why, but it was the court of women where the treasury was found, and that's where the offering was kept. And the court of women was open to the elements. There was no roof in this courtyard, and during the Feast of Tabernacles, there were thousands of candles would be lit all over this whole area. All week, the candles will be lit. So if you came to Jerusalem and you were walking from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, four or five miles out, you would look over and you would see in the temple, you would see this big glowing light. It would be quite a spectacle. It'd be one of those things that people would probably leave and go off for walks just to see this, the glowing light of the temple. It'd be like driving around, me and Jen like to do this, driving around on Christmas and look at all the, the houses that have all the awesome Christmas lights. This is one of the signs of the festival, that there's this glowing light out of the temple. During the Feast of Tabernacles, during this awesome celebration, there was a glowing light that came from the temple that, sh- that shined so bright that everybody can see from even miles away. And that's the point. 
You see, when the Feast of Tabernacles is finished, when this is all done, it's finished, the lights have all gone out. So all of a sudden, there's this shining light that's been lit for a whole week. Feast is now done. They've celebrated. Then the lights are blown out, and suddenly there's a voice saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. I love that Jesus says the most extraordinary things at the most appropriate times. Doesn't he? I mean, how incredible is that? Right when the light of the tabernacles goes out, right when this huge light that everybody was looking to, that was in the temple, that represented the temple, when that light goes out, all of a sudden Jesus is like, oh, this is the time to say this. This light that you're looking at, this light that you're looking at the temple, that's not it. I am the light of the world. See, in that proclamation, he says three important things. One, he establishes a human condition. He said the condition of man apart from him is abject darkness. He's saying apart from him, people cannot see. And the human condition is that we are blinded, that we are not able to see we live in darkness. Two, it says who Jesus is. It says he was a light that was promised. He is salvation. He is God. And in three, it says what Jesus does. He gives sight. He gives life. He recreates. Now, this incredible statement where he says, I am the light of the world, that's what he's proclaiming. These three statements, the human condition that we're blinded, we're in darkness, two, it announces who he is as the light, as the salvation that was promised, as God. And three, it says what he does. He gives sight, he gives life, he recreates. And it's just after this amazing statement, this incredible proclamation, that Jesus performs this miracle that we find in chapter nine that we heard Sarah just read to us. It's as if, okay, I made this bold proclamation at this incredible opportune time that was done on purpose, but now let me show it to you. Let me show you what that looks like. Let me show what that means by this incredible miracle that he is the light of the world. Jesus gives sight to a man born blind. Incredible story, an awesome story, and it fits perfectly, but it starts with a difficult question, doesn't it? Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's gotta be one of those tough questions, right? Who sinned? Who messed up? Whose fault is it that this man is born blind? Why was this man born blind? And he's called a man, we don't know how old he is. His parents say at one point that he is of age, which means he's at least over 13. He could be 20, he could be, I don't know how old he is. He still has his parents around. So we don't know how old he is. But a man who lived his whole life as a beggar. Because in the first century, that's what you did. If you were blind, you had no choice. You couldn't work the fields. Uh, if your parents weren't extremely wealthy, you had no choice but to be a beggar. That's how you survived. There was no government checks to help him out. There was no organizations to give him aid. He had to beg. Begging for a living on the streets, and they knew him, the people that recognized him. He was a familiar sight in the streets of Jerusalem, and the disciples asked this question. You see, they've got a working worldview. This establishes, by them asking this question, we can establish their working worldview that they have. And their working worldview goes something like this. Suffering is invariably the result of sin. It's either your sin or your parents' sin, but in some form or other, suffering is always, without an exception, the result of sin that occurred. They believed in judgment. They believed in a God that punishes sin. So what they believed in, they established their worldview. They said, okay, if we believe in sin and we believe in the God that punishes sin and suffering exists because of the punishment of sin, then the obvious logical question that they have to ask is who sinned? This guy or his parents? 
that establishes what their worldview is, that they believed in sin and the repercussions of sin and the punishment of sin. So let's look at this and let's dive into this meeting that Jesus has, this miracle that ultimately, guys, points to Jesus being the light of the world. This meeting has three parts to it. The first part is the blind man meeting Jesus. And there are three things of this part that I wanted to point out. First, it was the Sabbath, right? You guys heard that when Sarah was reading it? I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do want us to note that it does say that it was a Sabbath. In verse 14, John carefully notes that this was a Sabbath day. Now, there's already been controversy with Jesus and the Pharisees about the Sabbath and Jesus' attitude on the Sabbath. They did not like Jesus. They did not like his attitude on the Sabbath. And it's almost as though Jesus is going out of his way. You know, it's almost like, you don't like that? Ha, 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 I'll do it again. You know, he's almost like, he's like, I got you, okay. He's trying to court trouble with the Pharisees over the Sabbath day. And actually, as, as we'll see later on as we go through the book of John, this issue will be brought up over and over again and ultimately will lead to Jesus' demise or what we think, or what the Pharisees think, is Jesus' demise. This is an issue that really gets to the Pharisees. They're, they're boiling, they're, they're plotting his destruction because of Jesus almost uh, disregarding the Sabbath and what they believed to be something so holy. And it wasn't just this issue of working on Sunday. It was the issue of Jesus, you're, you're rebuking, you're standing up against everything that we hold dear, the things that make us special, the things that give us worth. You're sp almost spitting in it. You're making light of it. And this is all these, these rules and regulations make us feel better about ourselves, make us feel like we're more important, and you're making light of it. We don't like that, Jesus. But I love the second part of this conversation is about the blind man's condition. The disciples asked the question, who sinned? And once again, we said their philosophy was suffering is a result of sin. It's your sin. And you may not remember what the sin is. It could be so far back in your childhood that you may have forgotten it. Maybe it's something that you did as a teenager or as a kid. Maybe it's your parents' sin. But one way or the other, there's always a connection between sin and suffering for them. By the way, that's the theology of Job's comforters, isn't it? Right? That's exactly what they're saying in the whole book of Job. They're like, hey, you know, you must have done something, right, Job? I mean, I get it that you're a really good guy, but you must have done something. That's their worldview. That's what they're saying. But often we kind of see that too often, don't we? Things are not going well. There's a trouble, a difficulty. We say sometimes, maybe, maybe I deserved it. What did I do to mess up? We sometimes instinctively say things like that. I remember sitting beside a mother, and I'll, I won't forget this. Sitting beside a mother's uh, side one day, mother of one of my, I was doing youth ministry in Orlando. This is about, gosh, 2004 or five. So it was about 13, 14 years ago. Sitting beside a mother's side as she was weeping in a state of utter brokenness. She was moaning about all the sins she committed when she was younger and that was, must be why her daughter was involved in the things that she was involved in and doing the things that she was doing and throwing away her life as her daughter was once again taken to a rehab center. And she's just weeping and moaning and crying about all the sin as, as her daughter was once again found um, in a battered shape, a bad position, bad situation. And she was weeping and she was weeping about the sin that she committed. Her loss and pain heaped upon her and she felt that it must have been all the bad that she did when she was a teenager. And let me tell you now what I told her then that what I believe what she was believing was a lie, straight from the pit of hell. That her suffering now had nothing to do with the sin that she was radically already forgiven from. 
In fact, I believe her suffering was being used for greater purposes. So I want to be fair before I dive into this a little further, and I'll be biblical here. Sometimes there is cases where we do suffer from the result of our sins. It's not the case here, and it wasn't the case in the book of Job, but sometimes it is the case that we do suffer and it's because of our sins. If a person is wildly promiscuous and uncaring who their partners are, then it makes sense that they get an STD. That person can't rightly say that getting an STD has nothing to do with their choices or actions. But you can also get an STD through no fault of your own, through an accidental exposure, through transfusion, or something along those lines. Do you see the difference? Sometimes there is a connection between suffering and sin, and sometimes we don't see or don't notice, and there is not a connection. And I want you to hear this. In this instance, and in most instances, I truly believe that occur in the life of a follower of Jesus, the question isn't whether or not who sinned to cause this to happen, what sin caused this to happen. The question is, how can God be glorified in this troubled situation? Now, can I be honest with you? I want you to hear this from the bottom of my heart. For those of you who are suffering and those of you who are in pain, hear me very well. That I never will, have never stated that it's because, oh, you did this sin. Not always, necessarily. There are repercussions often for our our mistakes that we make. That exists. Yes, that is true. But there are also such suffering, disease, issues, pain, and hurt that we face daily. It has nothing to do with the sin that you committed or your parents who committed, but have all to do with a sovereign God that allows us to live in a sinful, broken world that uses even pain and suffering to accomplish his amazing purposes. I want you to hear that because some of you might need to hear that today knowing that you're suffering in some way And the last thing I want you to ever think is that suffering is just because you haven't prayed enough. And the last thing I want you to think is that suffering is just because you haven't read the Bible enough or you haven't given to the church enough. Please, that is not the case. That suffering exists because we live in a broken world that has sin in it, yes. But we also live in a world where God uses even the worst of circumstances, redeems those circumstances, and brings forth a more beautiful glory that we can ever hope for or imagine. And it's more precious than gold. Don't miss that, people. Please don't miss that. See, this question, how can God be glorified in this position? That's the viewpoint Jesus takes. That's his purpose in this blindness. He says that I wish with everything in my heart that I could adopt that viewpoint when I face trouble, when I face difficulties in my own life. Instead of wallowing in sorrow and grief and often self-pity, I want to ask myself the question, how can God be glorified even in this? And I'll be honest with you guys, just, just sharing my heart with you. This is for me personally. When, when my son was given an autism diagnosis, for me, my heart was like, really, God? And hear me very clearly when I say this. That was my heart, but I want to look at this and say, God, how are you glorified in the life of my beautiful son? 
You see, Jesus doesn't take this viewpoint. There's no purpose in blind. He says very clearly to his disciples, these things have happened in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. He's saying that there is meaning, there is purpose in his suffering, in his blindness, not as a result of sin, but as a result of God willing to do something that is so much bigger and better than we can even imagine, even bigger and better than the suffering. That there's purpose, there's a reason and actually, there are probably more times in our life that we will not understand, we will not discern what that reason is. Just as God is incomprehensible, so his ways are often incomprehensible, and we can't discern it, we can't work it out. We must simply bow and worship and trust, not knowing the answer to the question of why, but know that God is always good, and his ways are always better. That's ultimately faith and trust, isn't it? Was God's purpose in this man's blindness? God's purpose in this case was actually revealed to us is to provide a remarkable illustration of the gospel itself. Because it says in the midst of my trouble there is a purpose, there is a divine purpose. The world is in chaos, it's not whimsical, it's not haphazard, there's purpose. God is doing something and in this blindness he's showing us the sign that shows us that God is the light of the world and he's making all things new. Do you notice that Jesus does to this young man? I say young man, he could be old, I don't know. He gives him a physical sign as he's touching his eyes with clay. Really touches the dirt. Right? Where else is dirt mentioned in creation or making it all? Right? In, in, actually in creation. But not only does he give a physical sign, but he also says something audible. He says, go and wash in a pool called scent. Which is a little odd. Why mention the name of the pool? But specifically that it was called scent. But when you think about it, John, who's writing this, this book, he's the one that added that the pool was named Sent. And he's basically saying, as, as John in the gospel up to this point, he's saying a million times over and over again that Jesus is the one who was sent from the Father. Going to the pool would remind this man that the mission and purpose of Jesus was the one that was sent from the Father. See, what Jesus was doing when he touches the dirt, when he touches the clay, when he puts mud on the eyes and sends him to the pool called Sent, he's doing a act of recreation. When Jesus heals his blind man, he's restoring just a little bit of what the world ought to be like. When that man opened his eyes, he saw his mother for the first time. And he was born blind and he'd never seen his mother before. He'd never seen her face. He'd never looked into her eyes. He'd never seen her hair. He'd never seen the lips. I kissed him as a baby. But imagine it, just his little foretaste of heaven. He opened his eyes and he sees his mother for the first time. Guys, I saw a YouTube video and I'm getting older, I'm getting sappier, I'll be honest with you. And I cry way too easily now. And it's bad, I, I don't know, I, this morning, I, I happened to watch it, uh, I was checking my email, somebody sent me a link to a video, and I'm like, I started weeping over watching this video. It wasn't that good a video, but I, I cry now. But there's this video of this baby got hearing aids. For the, who saw this, anybody else see this video? Right? Am I right? I hear it for the first time, I heard her, the, the mom's voice, and the baby was like laughing and giggling, and it was so, and I was like, oh. <laughs> Here is this man who, who now got to see, see the mother that's held him and cared for him, the parents who've loved him, to see the sunlight and see beauty for the first time, the world as it was meant to be. Here's the creator of the world, the light of the world who co-created with God who came into Jerusalem and showed a bit of his creation, 
of his recreation, the work that he is doing. Do you see that? This is the work of Jesus. This is a sign that what John was trying to say is, guys, I want you to get this. The light of the world has come in the prologue. Remember, it says the light of the world. The light of the world has come, and he's recreating. He's taking those who have been in darkness, those who have been blind, and he's letting them see. And in reality, not just physically, but this reality, this, this need, this utter trap that the people were living in, this idea of what sin has caused this issue. Well, how, how do I fight forth from these laws of, of, of Sabbath and these laws that have been placed upon us and we've trapped in this situation and it's darkness. And John is saying, here's the light that has come to shine in the dark place. That it's not these laws that have been placed upon us. It's not these rules and regulations. It's an act of recreating, of recreating God who brings forth light. This follows an investigation by the Pharisees. See, there's a dark side to this story. Um, at the end of this, this, the feast that we talked about, the light, and I'm the light of the world, he repeats it here in verse five, as long as I'm the, in the world, I'm the light of the world. The one who is light is restoring light to the blind man so that he may no longer walk in darkness. But there's a dark side. Not only is he restoring and recreating, but he's also exposing darkness and the hostility in the Pharisees. Notice in verse 16, the Pharisees are divided. These Pharisees had a fixation about the Sabbath and what the Sabbath means, and for them, Jesus is destroying the Sabbath. The consequences for them is that Pharisees is that Jesus is going to destroy them. This whole identity that they've built up on this idea of these rules and regulations that they can keep better than everybody else. They puff themselves up. They built themselves up on this, I am superior than others because I can do this well. And then here comes Jesus trying to destroy them. So basically, he's, they're scared to death. They're like, you're destroying everything we built ourselves up on. They saw themselves as a guardian of the law, and for the Pharisees, the Sabbath was about what I cannot do, not what I can do. That's the great difference between the Pharisaical view of the Sabbath and the Christian view. The Pharisees are consumed by the question, what can I do on this day, instead of the what one should do and can do. One thing you couldn't do on the Sabbath was heal. You can't make bread. You can't make dough. And Jesus has said, I've come to pour light and joy into the Sabbath as a principle. See, I love the Pharisees here. They said they refused to believe that this man was ever blind. I love this reading in chapter 9. They keep on asking him, asking him. Notice in verse 24, they summoned him. Verse 26, they interrogate him. In verse 28, they, they, they mock him, they insult him. And then they ex excommunicate him. They throw him out of the synagogue, uh, the synagogue. And this is one of my favorite parts. Me and Gene were here just chuckling as Sarah was reading it. And there's a little line where the blind man says to the Pharisees, why are you asking me all these questions? Do you want to become a disciple too? Love that line, by the way. That's like my favorite. You know, everyone, that's one of the best way to share the gospel, by the way, just like there. Better than, uh, well, well, what's the gospel conversation? Just better than, you just, you just kind of, no, you want to hear, I'm telling my story about Jesus, so you want to hear it too, right? Or you want to become like Jesus? Okay, I got you. I love that. The hostility is there, and he's just kind of like, oh, so you want to become a disciple too? I, just boldness, I love that. But I love how this is also a dress rehearsal for John chapter 18 and 19, right? Because you see the Pharisees interrogating Jesus and the seeds of hatred and venom and blindness are right here in this chapter that lead to John chapter 18 and 19 where ultimately Jesus is interrogated and sent to the cross. And there's a beautiful third part of this story. The blind man comes to faith and I love it. 
the blind man has been cast out. He's been thrown out of the synagogue and Jesus has heard about it, which I think that's so cool. You know, Jesus already did the miracle and this guy's like saying he's a disciple, right? So this guy gets cast out of the synagogue. This is all he knows. This is his identity as, as a Jewish man. The temple is his identity. He gets cast out. He's excommunicated. He's, he's a reject. He's, he's kicked out. And Jesus finds him in that state, goes to him in that state. Guys, can I tell you, I love that about Jesus. For those of you who feel cast out, for those of you, I, I saw an episode of, of a TV show where this mother cast out their daughter because she wasn't you know, living right and correctly and all this kind of stuff. And I just thought, oh, I could, I could, my son could do anything. But then I'm like, well, maybe not, maybe not anything. But either way, <laughs> he was cast out alone. And Jesus, in the midst of his weakness, in the midst of his loneliness, goes to him finds him and says, I will not cast you out. And I love this, this man, his, his, his progression of coming to understand, his coming to faith. He doesn't have a clue. He just knows that it was a guy named Jesus who healed me. Doesn't really know who Jesus is. Doesn't know that much about him. Under interrogation, he says he's a prophet. Verse 22, um, maybe with his parents and discussing it, could be like, is he the Christ? Maybe, I don't know. In verse 35, when Jesus asks him, does he believe in the Son of Man? He says, well, show me where he is. And Jesus said, it's me. It's the one who's standing by you. And he believes, it says. He believes and he worships. You see, the story ends with those who thought that he could see being confirmed in their blindness. The story ends with those who thought who could see, the Pharisees who thought they could see, who thought they could do, they thought they could accomplish on their own, are confirmed that they are blind. But the one who was blind, having his eyes opened to understand and appreciate who Jesus is, that's a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is how the gospel works. And I love this. Do you notice that there's no mention at all of this man's name? I mean, don't you think John might have slipped that in? Hey, hey, you know, Billy or Bartholomew or Bob, whatever that guy's name was. They might have mentioned his name, right? John doesn't mention it at all. And maybe it's because John is saying to us, look, I don't want to tell you his name because put your own name in there. This is every man's name. This is every person's name. This is your name. This is my name. We need to see ourselves as, and understand ourselves as we're the blind one in need of healing. We're the ones that Jesus he comes and he places mud and does an act of recreating. He puts a new heart in us. He chooses us. He heals us. He recreates in us. Do you see that? And when our eyes are open, what is it that we see? The same thing that this man saw when he believed and he worshiped. We can say, amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. I love that when sight comes to the blind, when we see Jesus for who he really is, when we see his act of recreation, then we can face suffering. And we can see suffering for what that ultimately is. That we can see suffering as a means of God's glory. We can see suffering as a result of sin, but also used to bring glory to him 
and a means of refining ourselves. Guys, because I want you to hear this. I want you to hear this. When we truly see Jesus for who he is and we value the worth that he gives us, when he makes us a new creation, guys, can I tell you that even suffering pales to knowing God. If you get that, here's the deal. I'm just gonna be honest with you guys. The reason why suffering is so bad for us on this earth is because we value everything on this earth so much more. And it's not just you, it's me. Hear me very well when I say that. But if then, if that's the case, if we value things on this earth so much more, but the reality is that Jesus is of so much infinite more value and knowing him is infinitely better, then suffering is good because it can make us value him more and if we value him more, that's better for us. Do you hear that? Do you see that progression? That is how the blind can see. That's what happens when the blind see. And for those of you who are suffering, I'm not in any way making light of your suffering. I think it is hard, and I think it is deep, and I think it is difficult, but I also think it is glorious, and it has a purpose. That you're not suffering for no reason, that you're you're actually just, I think I used a couple double negatives there, but that you're suffering for a reason, and it's turning you into gold, and it's giving you a greater reward that's more of God. May our eyes be opened. May we see. And I want you to promise you one thing, those who are suffering in this body, that Jesus is recreating. Do you hear me? That one day, in all the pain that we feel in our physical bodies now, one day you will have a new body. And it'll be glorious. It'll be glorious. And those of you who are suffering with anxiety, one day you'll be rid of all anxiety. And those of you who are suffering from depression, one day you'll be rid of all depression. One day all will be made new. But till that day, I promise you this, he's still recreating you now. And he's using all that for a purpose. Do you hear me? Will you believe that? Every trial, every difficulty, there is a purpose. May our eyes be open to that. In Jesus' name. Let's pray.